Hello listeners, I'm Kathy Fang with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Amja Hall speaks with Vancouver City Councilor Jean Swanson about issues in housing affordability, safe supply, and her life as an activist on the downtown east side. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us here again this week. It's my pleasure to be speaking with Jean Swanson, who, of course, is a Vancouver city councillor, a longtime advocate in the downtown east side for going on probably over 50 years and a social activist in, in many areas. And it's just going to be wonderful to speak to her about her current role as a city councillor, but also work that she's done um, historically. So much to learn from Jean. Welcome. Welcome, Jean. Thanks, Sam. Nice to be here. Jean, I'm wondering if we can uh, begin with you introducing yourself uh, a little bit. So, yeah, I'm Jean Swanson. I'm a city councillor and I'm I'm a newbie city councillor. And most of my life, I've been an anti-poverty activist. Maybe we'll, we'll start with city council before we talk about other things. Uh, but recently, city council passed a motion to do further work um, related to single-family homes to be able to build six units on a site, up to 2,000 places, and staff are going to report back to City Council soon. You were able to get through some really interesting amendments um, on that as well, but wondering if you can speak to that motion and the kind of aspirations behind it, because it seemed to get in a City Council that represents so many different political parties, there seemed to be a, a general level of support for it. Yeah, so the basis of it is to allow six units on 2,000 single-family lots in the city or to have the staff report back on doing that. And I liked the idea of it in a number of ways. A, it's better to build denser housing on single-family lots than to demolish existing apartments to build more housing because we need all of the rental housing we can get. B, it had a plan for capturing the value of the land lift. If you have a single family lot and you can only put, say, a house and a duplex and a laneway house on it, that's three units. And then you say, oh, okay, now you can put six units on it. The value of that land will go up. And so part of this proposal is to capture that value that goes up and use that to increase affordability either for people who are on that site in the new development or off that site in the new development. I really like that part of it. And um, there was another part about maybe downzoning single-family lots so that the amount of land value that you capture would be higher. So that was good. But I had some questions about it, too, because nothing is really carved in stone yet. And I wanted to make sure that, that we get affordability out of it for some, either on the site or someplace else. So I put in four or five amendments basically designed to do that. I actually defined affordability as affordable for people earning under 50000 if they're single or 80000 if they're a family. But that, of course, doesn't even begin to get at the need for folks in the downtown east side, for example. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. It, and, you know, I guess, uh, yeah, this will be interesting as it goes through and, and gets the next um, layer of due diligence around it, because, of course, the concerns are sort of, you know, when duplex zoning and other things came across, it didn't bring about affordability. Yeah. And I guess the theory behind this is that with the number of sites increased, that this will create uh, a layer of affordability where previous policies happened. And so I guess the devil will be in the details in terms of how it rolls out. I'm wondering, Gene, if you can speak about your time on council in terms of other housing affordability policies you've been doing work on, you know, particularly single resident occupancy, hotels. There's been a significant amount of movement uh, that you've initiated and uh, just wondering at the civic level, you know, there's so many policies that uh, rely on provincial and federal, but at the city level, there's a lot that the city can do. And I'm wondering if you can speak to what you've been pushing the city to be doing more of. So for the SROs, the single room occupancy hotels, there's about 4,000 units of them in the downtown east side, and they're often called uh, the last resort of housing before homelessness, the single room, 10 by 10, washroom down the hall, no kitchen, conditions sometimes aren't very good. So we've been having a huge problem with them over the last 10 years, ever since Woodward's was rebuilt, uh, Woodward's development, and that is they've been gentrified. So Investors have been buying them up. They've been getting rid of the low-income tenants. Then, of course, when you get rid of a tenant, you can raise the rent as much as you want. So even before I got elected, I was dealing with this, reporting on it in the Carnegie Action Project's annual hotel report, and also trying to help people who were being evicted, keep them from being evicted. And you know, a landlord would come along and post a sign on the door saying, you have bugs, you have to move. And the tenant wouldn't know what their rights, that the landlords were responsible for bugs, not them. And they so then they would move and then they wouldn't be able to find an affordable place and they'd be homeless. Or a landlord would simply buy out a tenant. Say, the tenants came to me and said, Gene, they gave me, they're offering me a thousand dollars. I've never had that much money in my life. I think I'm going to take it. And I'd say, no, no, don't take it. You have to find another place that'll be way more expensive. So this has happened to hundreds of units in the downtown east side, and their rents have gone up by hundreds of dollars just because the Residential Tenancy Act doesn't require, it doesn't stop landlords from raising rents as much as they want when a tenant leaves. If we had a law like that, it, one name for it is vacancy control. So what we got at the city, and usually that's considered to be a provincial responsibility under the Residential Tenancy Act. But what we got at the city in December is we got vacancy control in the SROs with city jurisdiction. So now landlords can't raise the rents as much as they like when a tenant leaves. They can raise it a little bit, but not as much as they like. And I'm hoping that that will prevent a lot of homelessness. And I'm also hoping that we can expand it to more apartments in the city. CMHC comes out with rental housing market stats every year at the end of January or early February. So they haven't come out this year, but last year they came out. And they said of something like 60,000 purpose-built rental housing units in Vancouver, they have what the average rent is. They have what the average rent increase is. And they distinguish between 
what the rent is in a rented place versus what the rent is in the places for rent. And the difference they found was 20% in Vancouver. So a place that's for rent is 20% more than a place that's already rented. And they said there was a turnover of 11%. Well, so I'm figuring that we're losing affordability in about 10,000 units a year just because we don't have vacancy control, just because landlord can raise the rents as much as they like when a tenant leaves. And now with the SRO uh, motion that passed in December, we've shown that the city can do it. The lawyers say it's good. and. I think we should expand it to protect affordability for the rest of the renters in the city. Given the durability, the extent of the housing crisis, which you know really goes back decades, it's um, still alarming to me that there isn't uh, more public funding of advocacy for tenants. It certainly happens in a grassroots way with particular organizations, but it's really shocking to me that there hasn't been greater investment to support tenants from uh, public funding uh, to have a greater system of advocacy in place. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to you as a, as a housing advocate in the downtown east side with the Carnegie Community Action Project and other organizations and now being at the city I'm wondering what more can be done by citizens, people who are concerned about the housing situation to call for more support, because it seems to me that when people are put into that precarious situation, you know, you can stay and fight it and get advocates and all of that. But it takes people oftentimes don't have the time to deal with the time that the advocacy takes that, you know, what more can be done in that context? Because it does seem in a way it's it's a, a system designed to benefit the landlord and the powers that be to just move people along for the sake of profit. So at the beginning of this council, we got some motions through about um, having a city renter center. So there is a phone that you can call at the city and they'll help a little bit, mostly referrals to other organizations. And we also got a motion through to have a renter center. So that's one of the things I've learned being on council is that things take a really long time to get done. <laughs> so, but that should be up and running pretty soon. I think we've I've seen reports saying that it's happening soon. So hopefully that will happen and it'll be a renter center that people can go to and, and get tenant help. Yeah, and the city does fund um give grants to various community organizations that help tenants. Um, I'm not saying it's enough, but it is essential to have that. And yeah, if you think we need more, just uh, get your group to apply for money. <laughs> <laughs> um, Gene, um, I'm wondering with this council, you know, given that no one really had a majority, there's different groups on council and you've announced you'll be running for council again. But in terms of reflecting back on the past uh, three and a half years, almost Uh, What are you most proud of in terms of what the council has uh, accomplished by uh, working together on some policies? The vacancy control and SROs. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And and, um, Gina, I'm I'm wondering in the pandemic context, which has really been particularly intense in the, the downtown east side, how drug policy and the push for safe supply, kind of where that's at right now. It's in a mess. 
it's an horrible killing mess. There's all sorts of people in the community that are willing to solve the problem. There's all sorts of public health professionals that are pleading for help. I just saw an article by Ian Mulgrew in The Sun yesterday. It was an interview with uh, Lisa LaPointe, the chief coroner. She was just railing about it, that it's drug policy that is killing people. We need a safe supply. The city has supported the idea of a safe supply of drugs. The city has supported the idea of decriminalization. But it's just sitting there in with the feds. And, you know, they haven't done anything yet. And meanwhile, six people a day are dying. And there's groups like Vandu, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users and Drug Users Liberation Front, that have actually applied to set up a compassion club where they could distribute safe, tested drugs to people over 18 with all the protocols in place, like having everything locked up and accounted for and everything. And um, they could start saving lives tomorrow if the feds would give them the grant to do that and and change the law so they wouldn't be arrested for doing it. And I'm actually quite, I'm not proud of the city for a lot of stuff, but I am quite proud of the city for, for standing for safe supply and for decrim. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's, we desperately need that safe supply. There, You know, there's so many people like um, Perry Kendall, Dr. Perry Kendall, the, who was the previous provincial health officer before Bonnie Henry. You know, what did he do in his retirement? He helped set up a nonprofit company called Fair Price Pharma, and they have heroin already ready to distribute if they would not be arrested for doing it. So there's so many people in the community and in the medical profession that know what needs to be done. And it's just a stupid governments are preventing them from doing it. And as a result of that stupidity, people are dying. I think I know why they're not doing it. The Dolphin then do ask me to go with them one day to hand out free drugs, which I did. And um, I'm glad that I did it. But as a result of doing that, you know, Twitter is full of, oh, James Watson is a drug dealer, blah, blah, blah. And I, you know, Trudeau was probably afraid of something like that. But the thing is, and you can see it on the council, you know, when we spoke about this, the Compassion Club motion when the councillor spoke, you know, virtually everyone has been affected by the poison drug crisis. People know, have people in their families and their friends have died from it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's probably true in, at the upper levels of government, too. And I just wish they would come around. I think the public would support it. Yeah, it's, it's uh, remarkable to me that, you know, in the, in the late 90s, when the number of deaths provincially that we're having today, it's three to four times the number of, of deaths provincially. Uh, yet we haven't seen the level of movement from government that needs to happen. And even with the opening of insight as a result of that social movement, that what people were calling for back then was a safe supply. And and we're still, you know, 20 years later, um, still haven't achieved that in a, in a proper way. 
And so I really hope that that movement continues and that we do see much more urgency from the level of government in, in trying to uh, make this happen, given the incredible death toll this has already um, exerted, uh, not just in the downtown east side, but provincially and, and nationally. Gene, I'm wondering if we can, in um, speaking about your long advocacy, of course, you, you became a, a city councillor much more recently, but you have this, you know, 50-year history of doing grassroots um, activism. 45. <laughs> 45, sure. But I'm wondering, you know, you, you in the 80s ran for mayor of Vancouver, which a lot of people don't know. And uh, wondering if you can share some stories from that period. I, if I remember correctly, you you ran against Gordon Campbell, who was mayor at the, at the time. Wondering if you can share some stories of what you remember from that political run. Yeah, actually, I think excluding communists, I'm probably the most defeated candidate in Vancouver today. <laughs> <laughs> Because um, I ran for council a few times and MLA a few times, and then I ran against Gordon Campbell. Yeah, that was kind of interesting. He had a lot more resources than I had. <laughs> but the issues were the same, you know. Mm-hmm. Development. Who is the development for? That was the issue. Mm-hmm. In those days, I think it was illegal sweets. We wanted the illegal sweets to be legalized. Mm-hmm. He ended up getting 75% of the vote, and I got 45%. So, so I figured there was a clear 45, or he got 75,000, and I got 45,000. So I figured there was a clear 45,000 progressive people in Vancouver. <laughs> so, Gene, how did you, I, I know that you worked as a server in a bar in the downtown east side, and eventually began to do advocacy work, but I'm wondering if you can share a little bit of the story of how you arrived to doing work in the in the downtown east side and your sort of entry into community organizing. And the reason I ask is that there's a lot of people in our podcast who are young people, university students who are just getting started on their activism journey and, and stories uh, from people of how they first got started is always interesting uh, for people. Yeah, I was slinging beer at the Patricia Hotel. <laughs> and Bruce Erickson and Libby Davies used to come in and, and have a beer now and then. And Libby was our member of parliament for a long time. But in those days, she was so young that I asked her for her ID. <laughs> and she had it. And Bruce would come in too. They would always have the TV on in the pub. And when the news came on, I would often see Bruce and Libby doing something that looked like would be interesting, like occupying the Continental Hotel so that it could be used for housing for low-income folks. And the other thing was that my boss took me aside and said, watch out for that guy. He'll turn you in if you overserve." But the thing was... At that time, they wanted me to overserve. They, you know, I would come and say, "Give me." I'd know that maybe five people wanted a beer, so I'd say, "Give me five, and they'd say, "Take 10 and, and stack them on my thing. So I knew that my job there was basically making people into alcoholics, <laughs> and I didn't like that job. So. After a while, I asked Bruce. One time I saw Bruce eating on my lunch hour. He was uh, eating at the Ovaltine. And I went in and sat down beside him and asked him for a job. 
And about six weeks later, I got one. And then we started working on things like stopping over-serving, stopping the tax buyers from ripping people off, trying to get conditions in the hotels improved, trying to get higher welfare rates, things like that. So that was how I started. When you think about community organizing at that time, you know, going door to door, knocking on people's door, putting up posters, setting up community meetings to how you were community organizing with the Carnegie Community Action Project, where there's email and Facebook pages and the technology of how we organize has changed. But so many things stay the same as well, because you still need to meet in person and all of those kinds of things. But I'm wondering if you can sort of share your thoughts on how you were organizing in the early 70s to just before you became a city councillor in terms of like what changed in terms of how to mobilize people. Like you still have to show up at City Hall. You still have to do all those things. Like what stayed the same and what what changed over that time in terms of community organizing? The thing that jumps into my brain as you were saying that was we had a monthly paper called the Downtown East. And the way we would set it up is we had these big layout sheets that we got from the printer and we would type the columns of text twice because we wanted them to be even on both sides so type them on a typewriter and then we would glue them onto the layout sheets until some guy from the printer came and told us about hot wax So then we got a little hot wax machine. And so we wax them on so you could pull them up if you wanted. And we'd make headlines with Letraset where you got this, you scratched these letters off, big letters off onto paper to make the headlines. So that's how we did it instead of by computer. And the way we distributed the newsletter, of course, was by going door to door or taking them to, you know, places where people came in the community. So that's one thing that's different. The ways of communication, nobody had had phones in those days. See, but that's the key, you know, Em. You still need to do that person-to-person contact, Mm -hmm. regardless of whether you have Facebook or Twitter or, I mean, you can get get a a notice of an event out really fast with Facebook, faster than going out and putting up posters and having the police rip them off and putting them back up. (laughs) Um, But still, it's that person-to-person contact that really gets more people involved, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Jean, you know, besides this work in the downtown side, you've done, you know, social justice work in various ways. And and, uh, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to kind of, you know, your own personal motivation in getting involved in social justice work. Uh, You once told me a story about, I believe it was going to Mexico, I'm not sure, but uh, wondering how, you know, what shaped you that you wanted to have a life working in social justice? Because you have done it so consistently and for so long, and you're so deeply respected, not just in the political arena, but within activist communities as well in a really grassroots way. Yeah, when I was, I got married when I was 18, (laughs) started having kids, and um, my first baby died of meningitis when he was 17 months, and um, right after that, I inherited $1,000 from my grandma, so we went to Mexico, and I remember being on the bus going down to Mexico City, we could see these 
little processions beside the road that were funeral processions and the coffins would be about this big because they were babies. And I remember we found a place to live that was kind of catering to Americans. It was on a hill and below that there was a barrio and uh, some of the guys from the barrio used to come up and work for the landlord and they would, one of their jobs was mortaring broken glass into the top of the fence around the landlord's hacienda. I guess so people wouldn't come in and steal clothes off the line or something. And I don't know, there's just something about the juxtaposition of that poverty that we saw in Mexico. And I used to, when I was a kid, I picked berries and beans and I lived in Forest Grove, Oregon, and all the kids did all the agricultural work, which I now think is probably because of racism, because the local folks wanted to keep the Mexicans out. So they had all of all the white kids did the farm work. But sometimes I would go up into the hills and pick berries. And up there, they had more people of more black folks and people from Mexico doing the work. And I could see, you know, that there was a tremendous amount of poverty and there would be actual families in the fields with the kids in the rows and the in those days, they sprayed the fields with, um, you know, pesticides. I I got crop dusted a couple times. So there was kids there being sprayed with all this stuff and getting sores all over them and no Medicare, of course, in those days, even now in the States. So, you know, I saw some poverty and I didn't like it. So I guess that's what motivated me. It seemed wrong. <laughs> and then when Bruce and Libby came along, I saw an avenue for working on that. I wanted to to see if you could speak a little bit as well about uh, Sandy Cameron uh-huh. and, you know, meeting with him. And, you know, he did so much amazing work. He was such a great poet and an organizer, but someone who obviously was very important in, in your life. Yeah, I'm glad you asked me that. But I'm starting to cry, <laughs> so yeah, he was amazing. Um, I met him in nineteen eighty five I think, and <laughs> we became an item <laughs> and uh yeah, so I was with him for about twenty five years, and um he was very political. And um, he really encouraged me in all my work. He edited everything I wrote. He was very gentle. He was very present. Everyone loves him still. He was a beautiful poet. He wrote History of the Carnegie Center. I don't know if you've seen it. (laughs) It starts out, of course, with being on indigenous land. He used to... Before he met me, he had worked at the Union of BC Chiefs and he had taught Native Studies in a a couple of places. He was a prospector like my dad, too, although I think he prospected just because he liked to get out in nature. And he took me. um, I'd always wanted to go hiking, but I never had because the kids never liked it. They'd rather go to a motel with a pool (laughs) 
but he took me out hiking and we went all over BC, all the regional parks, all over the BC, all the provincial parks. And yeah, he was, he was pretty amazing. Yeah. He, I, I remember meeting him at the, the Carnegie center and seeing him uh, read his poetry a, a few times, of course, seeing it in the Carnegie newsletter um, all the time as well. I just um, always learning from being uh, around him and his, his writing. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Um, Gene, I'm wondering if you can speak to in your time being in the downtown east side, when you think about the future of the neighborhood and what you would like to see there, what comes to, to mind for you? Well, the first thing right now is safe supply, right? That's got to be the first priority. And then the thing is we need housing. I think there's about 2,000 homeless people in Vancouver now, maybe more. And probably we only have shelter space for about 1,500 of them. But a lot of people don't like shelters for very good reasons. So we, we desperately need housing that low-income people can afford. And that's suitable for them, that they should have a, some sort of say into what kind of building they go into, the number of rules it has and that kind of thing. Um, but beyond that, I mean, it's got welfare and disability are so low. I think welfare is about 900 and disability is 1,100 and some. But people can't afford to rent and eat. You know, I was on welfare in the 70s and I rented a bottom floor of a house with my two kids and I saved $100 a month. I mean, I didn't live high on the hog, but welfare as, a, as it related to the cost of living was a lot better then and there was a lot less of that kind of poverty and there was about I would say about a tenth the amount of homelessness in those days the other thing that was happening in those days was governments were building a lot of social housing in 1972 I think there was about 30,000 units of social housing built across Canada and that's when low-income people could afford social housing whereas now in Vancouver they can only afford at most well not at most, but the definition is 30% has to be for people earning 50 to 80K, basically. So even very low-income people can't even get into social housing, some social housing. So for the downtown east side, I think the keys are safe supply, housing, and higher social assistance. And there's actually no reason not to do them. We could easily tax the rich and get the money for that. <laughs> it would be so easy. And and in the long run, it would be way cheaper for taxpayers because there's all kinds of studies that show it's more expensive to keep a homeless person on the street. It's more expensive to keep people poor than to give them enough money to live. So I think those are the three big things right now. Yeah. Safe supply, housing, and welfare rates. Gene, uh, is there anything you'd, you'd like to add? Yeah, taxing the rich, that's, that would help a lot. That, would, that could give us what we need for climate, too. Climate is a huge, huge, huge issue. I was just seeing that when we had the atmospheric river, there were sewer pipes in about 25 places in Metro Vancouver that broke. So what are we going to do for the next atmospheric river? <laughs> or they overflowed. 
and some broke, an additional amount broke. You know, that's just one tiny, tiny thing. So taxing the rich is going to be able to solve a lot of, could solve a lot of problems that we're experiencing and and help us to do it in a just way. (laughs) Jean, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Below the Radar uh, podcast. Always lovely to speak with you and Thank you so much for the work that you've done over many years and also as a city councilor, it's a really important uh, voice to have on council. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Am. This is fun. Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. This has been our conversation with Jean Swanson. Head to the show notes to read up on some of the initiatives and examples mentioned in the episode. Thanks for listening and tune in on Tuesdays for more Below the Radar.